0: Quillen with us to, to speak. So, if George, do you want to come up here? I'll pray, pray over you. George has been here several times now. We keep bringing him back because he keeps doing a good job. Thank you. Uh, let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for this man who's willing to come and preach your word. I just pray that, you, that his words are, are your words and you give him confidence to speak boldly. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. Dear congregation, I greet you in the name of Christ. I pray and trust that you've been prayerfully looking forward to today. I'll call your attention this morning to Second Corinthians, chapter nine. Second Corinthians, chapter nine. Speaking this morning on the subject of a giving attitude, which is glorifying to God. Second Corinthians, chapter nine, beginning in verse six. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval in this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all all others, while they long for you and pray for you. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Who among us has not at some time or another experienced the disappointment of giving a gift someone only to be met with a less than thrilled response? Sort of deflating, isn't it? Doesn't your heart kind of fall flat when met with a response like that? Let's drill right to the point. Consider the ultimate example in John 1 11. He, that is Jesus Christ, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's a little sobering. The King of Israel came to the people who had the promise of his coming, but they rejected him. How it must grieve the Father. Well, more than once in scripture, we discover that our attitude matters to God. Our outward smile cannot conceal an inward yawn or indifference from the Lord. It's relatively easy to comply with another's wishes for us while having a poor attitude about it. We should understand, however, that our invisible attitude betrays how we truly regard something. And can undermine the finest of outward gestures on our part, as we'll notice in a moment. This morning we'll be focusing on verses 6 through 8, but not in a way you might expect. Verse 6 The point is this Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. MacArthur said this, this is a simple, self-evident principle, which Paul applied to Christian giving, that the harvest is directly proportionate to the amount of seed sown. Quite simply, we get out of something what we put in it. Consider Proverbs 11, 24 through 25 says this, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered or in somewhat more familiar language. Luke 638, which says give and it will be given to you. Notice the principle. Notice what he's talking about here. Good measure. pressed down. Shaken together. Running over will be put into your lap for with the measure you use. It will be measured back to you. May I note that while these verses we're looking at this morning have an obvious and immediate reference to money and goods, it's far more than that. The nature of them having been quoted likewise has immediate spiritual implications and application in the way in which we minister to others. It's more than just the money, what we put into the plate or the bag, what have you. The need, this need not apply simply to the giving of tithes and offerings, though it would be that, too. In fact, I submit to you that whereas Paul in our text was speaking directly to the collections taken for the Jerusalem Christians, even that was an act of obedience and worship to the Lord, the far greater principle. And so it directly applies to our church life and how we approach the whole of worship and Christian living. And that's the direction that I would take this morning. By the way. How do you prepare for each Lord's Day meeting? Do you? Or do we just show up? What does your Monday through Saturday look like? It's something to consider. Because we understand that in a Hebrew way of thinking, all of life is holy. Not just our Lord's Day activities. Right? Our Monday through our Saturday belong to God as well. Do you maintain family worship? Some call it family altar, family devotions. For a very long time, my family did not. That was not my experience growing up. What is family worship, you might wonder? Quite simply, it is sitting down with the family and the Bible, reading together, praying together, singing together. And this need not be an hour long service. I might be inclined to do that myself, but my children would not endure. They did not in the beginning, and I wondered why they weren't cooperating with daddy. (laughs) Oh, you laugh. I tried. Help me, I tried. But I discovered that it isn't the length of time that we do this. It's the gesture. But why bother? It's been said elsewhere that. The home, the family, is a little church. It's an interesting word picture there. We read in First Peter, "You shall be holy as I am holy." Well, God is holy all the time. We begin to see what it is we're called to. If you do maintain family devotions, family worship, Have you discovered it to aid in preparing for Sunday? I found it to be not only a good biblical instruction for the family, but also a good preparation for my children so that they know how to behave in church. Now, I'm not making any comment here. You all are doing fine with that. But for our part, my middle one has trouble sitting any other way than on his head and trying to teach him that there's a time and a place for everything. And so we practice at home. This couch is made for your side, not for your head. Feet doing this in the air that isn't helpful for people. And so what I discovered, though, was that he's still paying attention and able to learn, which is maddening to me because I can't remotely do that. If there's any distraction going on, I am so lost. And so it's a good proving ground for Preparing for Sunday. But the bigger, more serious picture is it's opportunity to spend time every day in the word together, showing the Lord our dependence on him. And so by the time Sunday rolls around, what we discover is it becomes the pinnacle of a week long of family devotions. And our proverbial cup overflows on Sunday as we prepare for a new week. But if you don't engage in family worship. May I urge you to begin? I had been reading at the time uh, an author who, just as a matter of fact, practices such a thing, and I became quickly convicted that I had not done that with my family. And, well, I was reminded of the text in Deuteronomy 6 where we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord is one. And then it begins to spell out how often it is that the parents at that time were to engage in biblical instruction with their children And it discusses doing so when you rise, when you sit, when you come, when you go. And the implication is this is a 24-7 activity. And it occurred to me, how much change do we really expect to be affected in the course of a couple hours and the entirety of a week? At what point does a Christian home put itself on pause in its raising its children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? And so we began to engage in it. And may I say, it's a tremendous blessing to see your children coming to understand the word better. And then to marvel at the understanding that they have at such things and think, praise you, Lord. It's working. We were all reminded of Psalm 119. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, speaking of worship. Consider Joel Beaky's assessment. He says worship is our response to what we value most. So does ours soar or does it sort sort of fall flat? Spirit worked religion must penetrate our hearts and the worship of the living God must be at the very center of our being. Consider our verse again. We're really not so far off. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. How do you sow this joy of worship throughout the week? Or do you? Because come Sunday morning you will have reaped what you have sown. We cannot simply arrive Sunday morning and flip a switch and decide we're going to worship now. You'll likely get exactly out of it what you've put into it. So, again, we consider this verse, do you sow sparingly or bountifully in preparation for Sunday? And we consider our Lord's Day activities, too. It's not a passive activity. We don't just sit and listen. We're to participate. It's not just those who are in the front leading the service. They're guiding, yes, but guiding us to actively participate in worshiping the Lord. Consider, for example, Romans twelve, six through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Did you know that the spiritual gifts that we are given by the Holy Spirit, whether one or many, are not for our own benefit, but for the local church? Do you sow? Those spiritual gifts in the life of the local church sparingly or bountifully. With that in mind, how do you invest your spiritual gifting? Has Christ invested in you? Has he invested in you sparingly or bountifully? Consider verse seven. Deliberate giving. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's that attitude again that he's so desperate for, that he's looking for. You recall, we read in the Old Testament that God does not look at man as we do on the outside, but he looks on the inside, which is really frightening. Because we can slap a smile on our face and when people ask, tell them, we're fine, we're fine when we're not fine. But God sees and he's interested. Whereas in the Old Testament, specific amounts of giving were in view, such as the tithe, which we understand means the 10th. The New Testament transitions to a principle, cheerful giving. And we see that here. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. But there again, there's that attitude fueling that, isn't it? Are we going to contribute sparingly or bountifully? He's looking for cheerful generosity in this case. We'll translate that into Christian living or into corporate worship. Do we show up and just skate through a Sunday morning activity just to say we've done it, check it off the sheet so we don't have to take a call from Sister Sue explaining why we didn't show up? Or do we show up because our heart thrills to join the body? We look forward to coming together. It warms the heart. We can't wait to join the local body. Pray together, study together, sing together, read the word together. We can do that on our own, of course. Those are called private devotions. That's called meditating on the word in your prayer closet in old, in old speak. But there's a time and a place for everything. There's a time for private devotions. There's a time for family worship and there's a time for corporate worship, such as we enjoy right now. How do you invest in the corporate worship of your church life? How do you invest in the church life of this congregation? And that doesn't necessarily translate into investing your money. According to scripture, it includes it. But that's just one spoke in a rather large wheel. If you are in Christ, you have been gifted in some way. And quite frankly, the local church needs you. God has brought you here. You have joined You have a part to play in the health of this congregation and to withhold that gift from the congregation is to deny them, to deprive them the blessing of what it is God has gifted you with. It should be a joy to contribute to the life of the congregation. If even to one person, if you knew that an encouraging word you had to say to someone would make a difference in their life, would it make a difference for whether you say it? Consider James 4.8. Now, we know that James cuts, uh, pulls no punches. He's, he's rather abrupt sometimes. But in God's wisdom, he gave the message, and so it must be appropriate. James 4.8 tells us, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Okay, well, that's, that's gentle enough, but then he goes for the throat here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded I don't know about you, but in in today's speak, we might say that he wouldn't do so well at winning friends, but he's not interested in that right here. He's trying to really get to the heart, because if you can make somebody mad, they're at least listening to you, right? They're at least engaging what you have to say. So try to make a difference. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Clearly, that's something that God desires or he would not have inspired this to be recorded here. He wants you to draw near to him. And who wouldn't if you're in Christ, that is, you have been reconciled to the Lord God, right? Of course, we should want to draw near to him. He's safe. He's warm, loving and kind. And that is the safest, best place to be. And we should want to be there like a young child that's hurt runs right into the arms of daddy. It feels pretty good, doesn't it? Imagine the heart of God. When we make a beeline right to him. Well, the first part there is clear enough, but in the second, it depicts a spirit worked response to God's word. To cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. How do we draw near to God, though? It's easy enough to say that that's what we should do. And we might say, well, sure, that makes sense. But how practically do we do that? Well, we know God has provided everything we need to do whatever he commands. He commands. In Christ, we draw near to God in many ways. Through reading the Word, it's purifying, it's soul satisfying, it's nourishing, the bread of life. We do by prayer, by fellowship with the brothers and sisters, by confession and repentance, praise and thanksgiving. Just thinking about it warms the heart, don't you think? It's Christ likeness being like our savior. How do you suppose the early Christians were called Christians, but that they were acting so much like their Lord that they were they were accused. They were accused of it. A.W. Tozer soberly noted this. You may have as much of Jesus as you wish. And in reality, you already do. I have as much of Christ as I wish right now. Does that maybe cut your heart to the quick? It does mine, but it's easily remedied. Considering your service to Christ, do you find it satisfying to meet the needs of others? Motivating, perhaps. Does it feel good to know that you've ministered to another and encouraged them? Consider when someone has an illness in the family or a loss of a loved one. And the local church rallies together to bring food to them. That food doesn't make the loss go away. It doesn't make everything better. But it, needs an, it meets an immediate need. And to know that other people love you such that they would want to meet whatever need they can. To know they're not just meeting your physical need right now. They're praying for you. James one twenty seven says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Those two seem incongruous. What's the one have to do with the other? Consider the orphans and the widows. These were considered in that culture and somewhat still today of among the most vulnerable. If they don't have someone watching over them, who do they have? They also had little to no voice in that culture, but we're also exhorted that pure and undefiled religion before God, the father is also this to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is from the the so-called wisdom of this world, the the culture that is contrary to Christ. Self-satisfying rather than Christ, Christ exalting. This verse is not the sum total of what God requires from us, but outward marks of whether or not love has become the principle that's conquered our hearts. Has the love of Christ constrained us to serve him with all that we are to love one another as we love ourselves? So when reading the word, read eagerly. When praying, pray earnestly. Consider the manner of a child. They come, and they ask us for something just once and then drop it. That's not been my experience. Rather, it's daddy heard you. I'm saying, wait. Pray earnestly as if God didn't hear. When singing, sing freely. When giving, give generously. When studying things of God, study and think deeply. Paul exhorts us in one of his letters to move beyond the elementary doctrines. And then he spells out a couple of them. and I think that doesn't sound quite so elementary to some of us. When doing acts of mercy, do so lavishly. For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver who doesn't want to please their parent. How much more so wishing to please our heavenly father. Notice verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Here we see more specific, specific spiritual application. What is it, though, for all grace to abound? It sounds lovely, but what does it mean? Well. Notice this. God's grace is the cause of all goodness in Christians. Goodness. There's another good word. But we notice that the way that God uses good is a bit different than the way we use it. You'll recall in Romans 3 says there is none that does good. Looks to us like some people do good. What's he talking about? There's a very different kind of goodness the way we esteem goodness and the way God regards goodness. Goodness. And God overflows with enough grace to make us cheerfully generous while still having enough or that sufficiency for ourselves. Notice some of the ways that God's grace is sufficient. And that doesn't mean just barely enough. It just meets the bare minimum, though. This is talking about that overflowing cup again. Romans 324 says that we are justified by his grace. We're declared to be righteous in his presence because of Christ. In Romans six fourteen, we discover that we're not under law but grace. Grace is the, the law of Christ. Second Corinthians twelve nine tells us that his grace is sufficient. Whatever your need, whatever your desire, his grace is enough. He has plenty for you. In Ephesians 2, 5, we read that we are saved by grace. A good, helpful way to remember is grace is receiving what we do not deserve, while mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. We don't wish for God to be fair with us. Really, we don't want justice. We cry for it occasionally, but we don't really want it or we would all be condemned. But we receive his grace. We receive his mercy. We do not receive the condemnation that we deserve, we do not deserve eternity in, in His presence, which we don't deserve. In 2 Timothy two one, we are strengthened by His grace. This grace is a bit like a multi-tool, isn't it? It satisfies so many various needs that we have. And in Hebrews four sixteen, we discover that we are called to His throne of grace. Isn't that marvelous? Because in ancient times, we understand that without the king's invitation, you didn't dare approach it. Or it was off with your head. And yet he calls us there. Here's an open invitation to every single person who's been reconciled to him. Chew on that. Your creator, your redeemer, your lord and king calls you to his throne. Come to me with any need. My grace is sufficient. Come to me with any thanksgiving. I'd love to hear it. We sometimes think of prayer as that means where we just bring all of our needs to. I mean, we certainly can do that. But isn't it also wonderful when somebody comes to you, not with a wish list, but with just a thank you. It feels wonderful to know that they're truly grateful How much more so do you suppose our Lord loves to hear? Thank you, Lord. Paul then tells us the fruit of this grace, and that is our sufficiency, which is simply in a bit more graphic language, contentment. Which is pleasing to the Lord to be content with what we have, knowing that at any given moment we have precisely what he wants us to have. And he's good in having given it too. We read in First Timothy six, six, Paul says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And we also see in First Timothy two, one through three, he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful And quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Philippians 4.11, the second half of the verse tells us, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. No matter where God has me, no matter how much he's given or has withheld, I can be content because my king is good to me. And he's kind and I can follow his directions because I know he has my best interest at heart, as can you. Is that your life's testimony, a contentment with what you have such that you can give lavishly to your brothers and sisters in the Lord and your local congregation, knowing that his grace is sufficient? He will meet your every need in Christ. What a sweet aroma to the Lord that must be. What a satisfying place to be. I have enough. What an attitude. We know that our attitude shows in the way that we live, the way that we speak. When others look at you, do they see a satisfied heart, a contented heart? I submit to you it's contagious. That warm, contented hearts, satisfied with all that our dear Lord is, not just what he gives, not just what he has, but all that he is. Such people thrill to give cheerfully, whether through offerings, service in the local church, encouragement to leadership. Or benevolent ministry, it's the same. In Matthew twenty-five forty, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You will recall those widows and orphans we read about in James, one of the least of these. So let's give and minister to one another as we would to our Lord Christ, shall we? God grant it to his glory and our joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your goodness has been lavished on us and we thank you. Grant, Lord, that we would enjoy content hearts, satisfied with what we have, not constantly yearning for something more as if it's the things that matter. Teach us that the great treasure of prayer is you, not what you give or withhold, but that you would satisfy our hearts and warm them with affection for Christ, grateful to you for all that you do through us, all that you have done and all that you will accomplish Work your joy in our hearts, Father, restoring to us the joy of your salvation, that we would live lives that are a sweet aroma to you and a testimony to those watching and listening. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen this church, the leadership within, and the congregation, that you would sustain them in Christ as they continue to seek your man to lead them Christward, that you would grant them a patience and sustain them that you would grant them wisdom and understanding and discernment, that they would seek and would find your man, that you would be pleased in all that you see, glorified in what you hear, and they would be satisfied in Christ. For your glory, Lord. Amen.